Today on Between the Lines, a brush with history when we meet Austin Washington, the great, great, and many greats in between nephew of our first president and commander-in-chief, George Washington. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Austin Washington, a historian and descendant of George Washington himself, has been immersed in our colonial history since his birth. With his book, The Education of George Washington, we get a true insider's look on what made the father of our country the man he was to become and how it shaped our nation itself. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was... You do, need to, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. I don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the first thing Austin Washington, I cannot tell you it is such a thrill to have a descendant of the great President George Washington in my studio. Welcome. It's an honor to have you here. It's very kind of you to say. I have to say it's a thrill for me to be in the studio of someone who actually asks engaging, intelligent, interesting questions. And I, I've decided this might be my only television interview because I think it's all downhill from here. So. Oh, now I'm <laughs> blushing. All right. Seriously. Seriously. All right. I'm going to take your word for that. But now let's t- I want to set this up because what it is is you uncovered a book that you were able to figure out was a key book of your great-great-uncles that shaped his character. Right. The thing is, John Marshall made a, like a five-volume biography of George Washington in the 18, in the first decade of the 1800s. And every biography since then has followed the same pattern. Five volumes, and they skipped over the first you know, couple of decades of his life almost completely. There are few incidents that are repeated again and again and again. And to this day, there's the George Washington Papers Project, which is still sorting through his papers. And, you know, people are lazy. And when they write biographies, normally they're writing them to, for their day. They're like, let's see George Washington through our perspective. But no one bothers going back to the original sources. And even when they do, you know, they were still collecting them. So yes, in his, in his papers was the f- receipt for the first thing he ever bought in his life. You know, this book is called The Education of George Washington. He was uneducated, pr- pretty much uneducated. He didn't get to go to the, the really, in, you know, this kind of posh school in England that his half-brothers had gone to, his older half-brothers. He went to this country school and he learned accounting. And, you know, he said the most important tra- things in somebody's life that shape them are the first transactions of his life. Well, it's ironic that the one thing he learned, or the one of the few things he learned, you know, surveying and accounting, led to this discovery because he made a very careful accounting of every penny he ever spent. And the very first purchase of his life was this guide to greatness, which is why I refer to it. And, you know, his father had died when he was 11. He didn't have the school schooling he wanted. And he shortly thereafter left school altogether. He never, didn't bought buy another book for several years. This book was the thing that turned his experiences that he was having into something that could change him rather than just experiences. Now... Don't leave our audience hanging. Yeah. Two great things about yeah. it. Tell us the name of the book because I have trouble pronouncing it and I'm, I'm putting it on you. And secondly, I want everyone to know that within the book, this book that we're about to talk right. about that shaped George Washington is also reprinted 
verbatim in the book. It is. So, so what is the well, name of the book? How well, do you pronounce it? it? <laughs> how do you, a, like you said, how do you pronounce it? It's a panegyric it? to the Duke of Schomburg, but the full title is about 30, 30 words long, and it lists the Duke's full uh, name, which includes about 27 titles. He's the grandee of this, the prince of that, the general of something else. But he was, he was a, a European nobleman, uh, and his minister, his, you know, his religious minister, wrote this book about him. Uh, when he died, and George Washington got this book, and it's really amazing how how well on the one on one level his experiences parallel George Washington's, but far more important than that is the fact that his character was what George Washington. But I want to answer, but isn't it that it wasn't it in Austin Washington's your great great grandfather's house that he first even saw the book? He had all these books in his half brother's library, and yet he still chose with the few the few coins he had to buy another one. Therefore, it obviously was important to him. He wasn't just buying a book; he bought this one book, the only book he bought for several years, despite the fact that he had other books he might have. Now you free. Now you said it was about. Uh, hit, explaining George's character, but that's what the book is, as you say. The the uh, the original book that he bought was really not just about a hero, the Duke it, himself, but it was about what characteristics yeah. make up a hero. Right. Um, it's a hero, uh, like a gentleman. You know, I, I think there's something really strange about... Uh, 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 in my book, I spent a lot of time... Most of the time talking about what happened then, but I spend a lot of time talking about today and sometime, some of my time in the book talking about, you know, a few thousand years ago. Because the idea is that these values are, you know, transcend society, transcend geography. And I think, you know, so these qualities that George Washington inculcated, um, are the qualities all of us can, even if we're not generals or presidents. Well, that's what you yeah. did. This is what makes this book very unique, and you, you hinted at it before. It is a part history book. It's a part commentary on today. But as you just said, there's a, a, in a very weird way, it's a self-help book because it allows you to take the same wisdom that George did. And even if you're right. not going to lead the right. revolution or become president, you could at least learn how to be a great human being. Yeah, and this is what I try to do in the book. I try to kind of give... like a gestalt so that people can just see these different examples of what he did and the way he viewed things. And, you know, they can understand what that means because it's a nice ideal, the idea of a gentleman. I mean, lots of people are supposedly gentlemen and they're not. And people associate with money, which he doesn't have to be associated with. But there's something about being a noble person that's just not in popular culture these days. You even say that George Washington didn't become George by accident. He actually followed a deliberate plan, even if he wasn't aware of it, he was aware of it. He was following a deliberate plan yeah. on how to be a true gentleman, how to live a life of virtue, how to treat other people. He really learned all of this and was, he felt more proud, according to you, when he was able to do the right thing than when he was able to get any sort of fame, fortune, or money. It never mattered. It was doing the right thing. I, I think it's it's interesting to imagine living in that world they lived in, where, I mean, you're basically, you're on the frontier. The civilization that exists is up to you. And he did try to bolster his reputation 
a little bit, but he did that based on things he'd actually done and for a noble purpose. He didn't do it so people would think, George Washington is cool. He did it so that he would be in the position to, you know, to lead the country and to have people trust him. Um, but for George Washington, yeah, he, he decided, you know, he couldn't, he didn't have enough money to go to the school that he wanted to go to. And so he set out, you know, to make it in the world at a very young age, at like 16, 17. And, um, you know, I, it's arguable that we delay responsibility too long. You know, we, we try to get you know CV or you know resume points for college applications, but they're all kind of fake accomplishments, not real accomplishments. You know, he was genuinely out there in the wilderness, you know, running into Indians carrying scalps and you know being you know all that kind of thing when he was still a teenager. And I think I say in the book, yeah, I mean, his parents or somebody would be sued today by child services. You know? But you say Protective one thing services. about his parents that I think are is so important for parents today, and that is George's father pushed him in a direction that seems to have suited George's nature. I am such a strong believer that a parent, even of two different children, shouldn't necessarily treat them the same, but should treat each one according to his nature and guide him or her according to that nature. Right. Well, that's the difference between instruction and education. The education of George Washington isn't about his school education, but, you know, educare, the the root, the Latin root, and also it's still an Italian word today, means, has a sense of sort of drawing out from from inside your innate qualities. Now, obviously, you have to have a certain amount of information and you have to be able to write clearly and stuff like that, but you're absolutely right. To, to draw out from someone his innate qualities is what education should be. Well, you even say he didn't get a great education. I mean, you say he didn't get a good education because he wasn't able to go into English in the right. high-profile schools, but he ended up with a great education because he got to experience life in a way that he was able to digest yeah. and then interpret within himself of what character should be defined. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, you know, his half-brothers who went to these fancy schools, I'm sure could talk about ideas that he couldn't talk about very wittily and cleverly. But it's, you know, it's like Churchill also was the same way. You know, he read a few books really, really carefully. George Washington spent, you know, a couple of years with only this book. And somehow by reading this little book, The Panegyric, which is in my book, um, that got into him, like the, the, the lessons, because you know you can you can learn everything there is to know about Rome, and you can have dates and all this. But if you don't really get what it really means, and it's hard to get what it means if you're constantly having to answer questions and you do exams. But if he just, if he was out in the wilderness going on his adventures, and he had this book to read, and he had an, an experience, a real experience, you know, with things that could kill him, and he had this wisdom to guide him. I mean, it, it was obviously an incredibly powerful education. Well, powerful enough so that you say, and this is even said in the Duke's book himself, greatness and goodness, they are seldom united in others, but it, they are inseparably linked for the Duke yeah. and for George. Yeah. I can't say it better. But it is, if you think about it, if you think about it, even if you, know, if you become great, it's hard to stay good. You know, King George famously said, you know, if George Washington walks away from power, which he did you know, twice, he will be the greatest man you know, of our century or, or ever, whatever the quote was. Um, but it, it, it really, really rarely comes together. Because um, there's something about being humble 
and good, which go together. And greatness, it's hard, you know, it, it doesn't come together often. You know, he was a great leader. He was admired. People looked up to him. People respected him. And yet he, you know, the best thing he did was set the president for walking away, for precedent, for walking away from the presidency, for walking away from power and, you know, not staying in a position of power after the revolution. And really, 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 um, you know, I mean, the other thing to think about is, you know, he had everything he wanted. He, he had a great farm that was running well, and he was a good businessman, and he diversified his crops, and he was clever, and he had a distillery. And, and, and you know, the, the principle upon which the revolution, you know, happened ended up being, you know, a two pence a pound tax on tea because, you know, all of the intolerable acts were, you know, done away with. And it was simply the principle, no, no, you cannot tell me what to do. And I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to risk everything I have, not just, you know, because I have this comfortable life, but it's wrong. And so, yeah, so that's an incredibly good thing to do, to risk your life. Because if anyone would have been hanged as a traitor, it would have been George Washington. For something as abstract, you know, in that the, the reality of it was a two-penny pound tax on tea, you know? Now, it's interesting. You say that he never took commu- communion, and by our standards today, would not even be calling himself a Christian. But yet, he lived the gentleman Christian life, and he also felt very strongly that he was guided and that we all were guided by providence. That was the word that you use over and over in the book, the word providence. Right. Um, but providence, yeah, that, that's the thing, that's the magic, uh, the magic part of George Washington's life. He, um, he believed that there was this force that, you know, he was in a battle once and an Indian was assigned, an Indian marksman was assigned to shoot him and he took 19 shots at George Washington and missed every time. And the Indian gave up and said, I can't, it's wrong. I can see he's protected by the great spirit. George Washington wrote in a similar situation to his commanding officer and his mother, he he wasn't all that close to, oh, I was lucky. But he wrote to his favorite brother, I was protected by providence. So George Washington didn't use providence as an abstract thing. Providence was the thing that made the bullet go through his hat and go through his cape and hit his horse and not hit him. It also, you know, was important in in, in the big picture, but also in the small picture. And so providence probably can help anyone. But what George Washington did did that was special was that he aligned himself with the best ideals and the best ideas and the most noble, you know, feelings that Western civilization had ever come up with and used, you know, his connection with providence to further, further that, that thing, you know, in his own life and, you know, in the lives of those around him. And hopefully, you know, he tried to do it for the whole country. The one thing you wrote specifically yeah. in the book was yeah. George had a uniquely American right. aversion to displeasing even the most ordinary people. It's Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue, as well as guests Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, 
Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. Well, I, I, as I said, he, he had the ability to, to relate to people from different backgrounds. That was an incredibly class-conscious society. And the fact that he was even out on the frontier, as I said, dealing with, dealing with woodsmen and things like that was something a lot of people um, from his background wouldn't deign to do. Uh, I, it's shocking because we don't really get this so much in history books, but I've read things about people you know, looking at people of his class and almost looking like, well, look, looking the way we'd look, some of us would look at a Hollywood celebrity today. Like they're just, they're not human. They're just like taking their hat off and not being speechless in the presence of these people. I mean, George Washington did take advantage of that a little bit in his, in his, you know, famously once he was on, on a journey and he was in a carriage between towns. But when he got to a town, he'd get out of the carriage and onto the horse his white horse and ride through the town. So he, I mean, he, it was important that people looked at him as being maybe something slightly special, but that, that does, this not the same, you're right, as looking down on other people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He, people may have looked at him as special. Right. Here's the exact words you wrote. Yeah. He felt that other people didn't understand how vast and magnificent they were, or at least the thing that they were all a part of. So there again comes that providence, that sense of humility, that sense of, so so what other people might have thought, he thought they should have felt better about themselves. So he didn't disrespect the fact that they respected him. He appreciated it and in turn respected them and wanted them to respect themselves as much. Well, I think that has to do with your connection with providence and your connection with with the thing that George Washington believed controlled everyone's life to the extent they allowed it to. You do let us know he wasn't perfect. You, yeah. you mentioned that yeah. he has a, uh, a temper, yeah. but at the same time, he's always striving to temper of his course. temper. Of he's course. always striving to be a master of his emotions yeah. and to harness those emotions in a way to elevate not only himself, but to elevate, more importantly, the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, yes, we all ha- have, you know, all, at some level we're animals and we have these things and they're fangs and we have this desire to k- kill animals where there are bare teeth. If we're left alone without a society, that's what we'll do. So most of us in America have got beyond killing animals with their bare teeth, but there are higher and higher and higher levels you can get to. And George Washington took you know, the passion for you know, for for you know, the pa- the animal passion that he had, and directed it at things that bettered his life and the life of his society and and the life of all mankind, basically, because you know, he set the example for for a country that at least strived for freedom and independence. You also like to bring out his stumbles, and you say that that's important because if he was perfect, we'd have nothing to learn from. And his first battles, he lost. There was an accusation that he might have murdered somebody. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things, and yet it's those 
It is the failures that he has that makes him human, that makes him almost more worthy of our appreciation. And you bring that out very clearly in the book, that if he was this perfect man, what would we, we wouldn't be able to strive yeah. as a nation. The nation wasn't perfect, he wasn't perfect, but he certainly, you know, took the imperfections, learned from whatever failures every time he learned a new way to approach something, a new way to do something. And it's important for us to keep that in mind, even when we, with, with dear remembrance, think of our founding fathers as flawless. They were not flawless. They were men with flaws who did their best to overcome them. Yeah, and one of the best, you know, we we're talking about providence and spiritual things, but one of the best psychological traits George Washington had, and you can see this if you look at his writing, is when he wrote about the same event throughout, throughout his life, it got better. You know, what he did got better and what happened got better. So he had the capacity not to let bad things bother him. I mean, he, you said he was, was accused of murdering someone. He's accused of starting a world war, the French and Indian War. I mean, imagine having that on your, on your resume, on your CV, you know. At that point, mediocre farmer, best dancer in Virginia, and oh, started a world war. You know, and yet he was, I mean, imagine how humiliating that would be to most people. He was accused of starting a world war. And yet he got over that and he, and he did some really, you know, he ignored uh, uh, the half king's advice at this battle and he made his fort too low and then his bullets rained down. And he just did some ridiculously bad things that he, he could have avoided had he listened to other people's advice. But by the time he got to be the, you know, the commander in chief, he knew enough not to trust himself. And so he made sure he had a war council. And he suggested several times before he crossed the Delaware, crossing the water that used to surround Boston. And he was advised against it. And he listened to advice. So he absolutely learned not only from his mistakes and how to make better decisions himself, but how not to make mistakes by taking other people's advice. Well, it's funny because both Jefferson and Ben Franklin say this about him. Jefferson actually was the mind, sort of the, the, the mind behind all of right. this. And he even says, Joe's, George's mind was slow in operation, yeah. being a little aided by invention or imagination, but sure in conclusion. No judgment was ever sounded. He was indeed in every sense of the word, a wise, a good, and a great man. And Ben Franklin then echoed, I don't know about any president that will follow, but I know and can rest assured that we have a good man as our first president. Yeah. You want me to top that? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's true. I mean, that, that is the, the, the thing that he got by not being overly educated in school, but by being educated in life using the aid of this, of this wisdom, this vast trove of wisdom that was kind of distilled in the panegyric. You write something so beautiful here that I think is important. Brains without wisdom have a history of being more dangerous than stupidity. Um, I should read the book again. I, I like that. Um, it's, well, it, I think you, it, it doesn't take a very vast uh, you know, survey of history to see lots of examples of that. Um, wisdom is the rarest thing. It's, it's, there are lots of incredibly clever, crazy, bad, stupid people. You can be clever and stupid. You can, you know, ace all your exams and, you know, and you can get, a, you know, get an MBA and, 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 you know, leave springs and locks and kill, you know, people. Um, 
it's what wisdom is a hard thing and the bravery and the courage and the fortitude to you know to to lead people to have them follow your wise ideas is is also an, an incredibly rare th- quality another choir rare quality patience you bring this out in the book patience can cause miracles lack of patience can cause disaster and we see where the patience in even the battles themselves where it paid to wait that extra moment that extra day it might be patience combined with wisdom that's a combination that's hard to beat yes it is um the surely i mean as i s- said a moment ago if if george washington had listened to his own advice it's easily possible that you know we would have lost the revolution at boston he was patient enough to wait the winter he was patient enough to 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 you play 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 that 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 fabian strategy which enabled him to endure long enough that the french eventually came to our aid and problems happened with the british and we eventually won the war and trying to do it all at once would have been a losing proposition i think this point that you bring out about your great uncle is the one that i even often bring out in in the show and that is that george knew from personal experience that it is even more difficult to conquer yourself than to conquer your enemies. Yes. I think we all know that. Do I need to expound on that? It's the truest thing said. And it took George Washington, who many people think of as some idealized perfect person, decades. And he never got over every problem he had. He never lost his temper. He never he never was perfect. But it it took him a really really long time. I mean, just imagine being accused of starting a world war and going on <laughs> you know <laughs> to be considered the wisest person in the country Austin I can listen to you reminisce about your uncle forever but our time is up I'm going to end with these words the way to be like George Washington is to do what he did on the inside which may mean doing something that no one has ever done before and no one else but you could conceivably do thank you Austin for showing us the footsteps of your great great uncle and how it was so important to the establishment of our country. Thank you. It was a great great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. It is my pleasure and thank you for joining us. Now before Austin leaves, I'd like to leave you with these words from the education of George Washington. Sometimes a great man sees through the superficial requirements of society to the fundamental standards of true civility toward other people. and he allows those fundamental standards to shape his behavior and his life. I'm Barry Kibrick. See between the superficial and the fundamental and like George Washington himself, you too can shape your behavior and change your life. Thank you, Austin. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, Please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.